Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 1st, 2017. On today's show, we'll be going into the water cooler talking about Don't Breathe, Ingrid Goes West, and iTunes reviews. And in the news, we'll be talking about early buzz for downsizing in the shape of water, Alexander Payne and Guillermo del Toro's newest films. We'll be talking about the coolest Star Wars toys from Force Friday 2 and what we've learned about the Last Jedi from them, and an all-female Lord of the Ra- Lord of the Flies remake uh, is in the works. We'll talk about that as well. And in the mailbag, we'll be talking about movies that uh, have to do with journalism. Exciting. Um, with me on today's podcast are Huay Tran Bowie. Hey, what's up, everyone? And Brad Omen. Hey, that's me. Uh, guys, come over here to Water Cooler. Um, have some stuff to talk about. Last night, I finally saw the horror film Don't Breathe. I think it was from last year. Um, almost every one of my friends told me to see it, and I, I missed it in the theater. And fi- finally, I think it's on like stars or something, and I was able to see it. And guys, this movie is awesome. Like, why did I not believe everybody that told me to see it? It, it, it is a great horror film. Um, and I don't know why it wasn't... Uh, as loved by critics or at least like I, I don't feel like it was as talked about in on film Twitter and that whole circle. Brad, you, you saw the film, right? I did. Yeah. My uh, my mom and I love going to see horror movies together. And so she was super excited about seeing that. And that's why I saw that in theaters. And we should say this film is about a bunch of kids who break into this old man's house. And he's a uh, blind man. He's played by... Um, Stephen Lang. Stephen Lang from Avatar. And um, basically, it's all about this badass old man discovers that they they have broken into his home and uh, they have to escape him without making a sound. And um, I won't reveal how that goes, but it, it is it has some great moments of suspense, some amazing shots. I think it's done by the guy that did the Evil Dead remake. Um, and... Uh, I'm now on board for anything that guy makes. I'm 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 gonna be you know first in line. 
because that movie is so great. So if you have not seen Don't Breathe, I would highly recommend adding it to your watch list. And if you don't have stars, you know, I'm sure it will end up on Netflix or some. Be- what? I was going to say, beware that it is pretty violent and it does take quite the sinister, uh, unnerving turn towards the end. For sure. For sure. Um Speaking of dark movies, HTA, <laughs> you finally saw one of my favorite movies of the year, Ingrid Goes West. What did you think? Yes. I saw it last night and it was it was hilarious. So uh Ingrid Goes West is Aubrey Plaza's new movie. She co-stars with Elizabeth Olsen. And Aubrey Plaza plays this sort of mentally unstable woman who is obsessed with Instagram stars and she becomes obsessed with Elizabeth Olsen's uh, Instagram star and moves across across the country to stalk her and follow her and basically single white female her. So this is kind of single white female for the modern audience, but played with a comedic tone instead of a horror one. Although there's kind of some horrific elements lying underneath. Uh, but it's a, it's a really good um, cringe comedy as well as this sort of biting, biting satire on our current social media um, landscape. Although I kind of felt like it was a little bit of a shallow reading of social media as if it was, uh, for, well, for example, some of the numbers of like these social media stars only had like hundreds of likes. If they're real Instagram stars, they're going to have like in the thousands. So that's just one reason. <laughs> but oh, I, was, I, I would argue that that's just, it's just a low budget film and they just did not Photoshop those. It, it, what's interesting <laughs> is you can actually go to on Instagram, you can go to Ingrid Goes West, and you will actually mm. see the posts from the movie that they used during production. So I, I just don't think that they photoshopped those uh, those Instagram posts that, that were actual Instagram posts from production. That's true. That might be, but yeah, it was it was really funny. It was um, definitely very much in line with Aubrey Plaza's cringe comedies. I remember seeing, oh, what was that film? The List. Um, yeah, I think it's The yeah. List. Yeah, the list. And that was my first introduction to Aubrey Plaza's particular brand of like very raunchy, cringe the, uh, the to, humor. The to-do list is actually the name of yes. the Yes. Oh, the, do, the to-do list. Right. Yeah. And she kind of follows it up here. She has that very um, – she has that brand of just like terrifying uh, sensuality that she really brings to this film. And it is kind of – it's interesting that it doesn't really delve into like her mental illness or whatever. It's more a kind of a stand in for this, um, for its condemnation of social media and narcissism and that reliance on that. But I think it like, it brings its point across really well. And it was just, it was funny and a little bit surreal and, definitely worth your money if you go see it in the in the 600 theaters that it is screening in across america yeah this is another one that i would recommend if it's playing anywhere near you which 600 theaters it probably is go Mm -hmm. see it the supporting performance well even all the performances aubrey plaza's great o'shea jackson jr who was in uh straight out of compton and played Mm -hmm. ice cube and i i did not know because i'm an idiot that that's (laughs) ice cube's son 
But uh, yeah. just because, it, it, like, when you see straight out of Compton, you almost think like, "Oh, he's so perfect as Ice Cube." Maybe, maybe they just found someone that was perfect for that role. <laughs> but in this movie, he's amazing, and uh, he really stole the show. Yeah. I loved him in this. He's and very charming. I, I think that guy's going to have a huge career. Wyatt Russell, who is in uh, that Black Mirror episode playtest directed by Dan Trachtenberg, great, and uh, you might not recognize her, but Mantis. From Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two is also in the movie, um, oh. yeah, as as Harley. Tom uh, so, Yes, I can. I can, cannot pronounce her name. Uh, <laughs> Brad, what have you been up to? Well, we've been reading our iTunes reviews lately because our podcast has been seemingly been doing pretty well. We've been getting a lot of listeners. We get some great questions from those listeners, uh, and since we implore all of our listeners to give us. Uh, good reviews on iTunes if they like the podcast. We like to see what they have to say. And I got to say, reading through all the positive reviews you have, because honestly, overwhelmingly, most of them are five stars and from fantastic people who love the site. Yeah, we, we, we have 113 reviews and 106 of them are five stars. Yeah. And they just like they're clearly loyal slash film readers. They love slash film cast. They like this new endeavor and they're just they're really supportive of like what Peter has created and it just made me realize that like I'm very lucky to be part of Slash Film and I just wanted to make sure that like uh, you know that like I really respect what you do Peter and like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just like a lowly wannabe film critic who doesn't deserve to be part of Slash Film. So I just want to make sure that like you know how amazing this is and that I love being on every single episode and that's it's just it just feels great. okay for those not in on the joke Brad is alluding to one review here that called him a wannabe film critic and they got it's your just, name wrong right yeah Ethan Anderson is apparently this other writer that we have for the site I imagine he's an evil version of me. He hates Star Wars. He hates Saturday Night Live. And he's not sarcastic at all. He makes no jokes whatsoever. He's just a plain jerk. Yeah. I'm sure that the one person who absolutely hates me on this podcast would love Ethan Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we we really appreciate all the reviews. And, you know, this does go to help us go up the rankings and have other people find this podcast. So if you do like this podcast, I plead to you, and I plead to you at the end of every episode. People probably shut off the podcast at the end of each episode before it. But please, if you like this podcast, go to iTunes. Give us a rating. If you like us a lot, give us a review. Um, it, it definitely helps a lot. And uh, and I, I'm, I'm really overwhelmed by all this positive feedback. I know that... Um, no, uh, we, we, we were, this has been a learning experience. I think we've done like almost 50 episodes now and we're, we're, we're starting to get the hang of it. And I promise guys, we're going to have opening intro music and an intro and an ending song that's coming. I, I it will, it'll be here one of these days. Just, uh, stick with us and, uh, uh, thank you for listening, but let's, uh, get into the news. Uh, right now there's uh, the film festivals are starting up. Film festival season. Telluride is happening as we speak, and uh, the Toronto International Film Festival is about to begin. And right after that, Fantastic Fest. So we're starting to hear all this early buzz of films that are playing. The first of which I want to talk about is Downsizing, the comedy from Alexander Payne, who, by the way, Election is one of my favorite movies of all time. Brad, what is the early buzz for Downsizing? 
Yeah, downsizing. And, oh, and, and what is downsizing? I should say too. For sure, yeah. Uh, so downsizing just premiered at the Venice Film Festival, which is one of the film festivals you didn't mention, and it will be playing at Telluride. Um, as you said, it's Alexander Payne's new film, and it takes place in a future where scientists have figured out how to shrink uh, humans down to five inches as a way to combat overpopulation. So that way we, t- we can t- take up less space, we consume less goods, that kind of thing. And so uh, society has started to build and grow immensely as a s- very small civilization. And the movie itself follows a couple, Kristen Wiig and Matt Damon, who decide to take part in this new endeavor and shrink themselves and how it affects their life and that kind of thing. And so the early buzz in the movie is it sounds like it's it's great. Um I'll read one excerpt here that's one of of my favorite pieces of a review from the playlist. It says, In a way, downsizing performs a sleight of hand similar to that of The Truman Show, in that you come for the high-concept sci-fi, but stay for the characters. Which is not to say that the sci-fi elements are badly handled, though sometimes when tiny people and normal-sized people share the frame, the CGI feels a little unconvincing. We wisely never see the actual shrinking process, just fun before and after details. And even then, it quickly becomes clear that simple sight gags about scale and size differential are by no means the best of the film's humor or insight. Honey, I shrunk the kids. It ain't. So it sounds like Alexander Payne has successfully bridged elements of sci-fi with his own filmmaking sensibility. She's always been really good at crafting kind of uh, quirky, awkward characters and how they approach life and what they're looking for. And to have him combine it with a very high concept like this feels almost like it could be along the lines of his eternal sunshine of a spotless mind or something like that. For sure. And I, I got to see, I think, 15, 20 minutes of this at CinemaCon, and it, it, it looked incredible to me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm very excited about it. Um, I did hear from one person who saw a test screening that he didn't love it. So, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to keep a look out on this early buzz. You can read more quotes on the article on SlashFilm.com that's linked in the show notes. Uh, let's move on from that to Guillermo del Toro's latest film, which is The Shape of Water. HT, you wrote up the early buzz yes. for Slash Film. How is this film? So this film is getting nothing but positive buzz um, after its debut at the Venice Film Festival this week. Um, it's gotten rave reviews for its visuals, its social commentary, and most of all, its dark fairy tale love story at the center of it. And I cannot be more excited because I am a personal Guillermo del Toro fan, but I was actually quite surprised that every uh, review for this movie has been just raving about it. Um, So one of the great, the best reviews for it, um, I'm going to quote Variety's review um, or the excerpt from it. This decidedly adult fairy tale about a forlorn, forlorn mute cleaning lady and the uncanny merman who save each other's lives in very different ways, careers wildly from mad scientist B-movie to heart-thumping Cold War noir to ecstatic wings-on-heels musical, keeping an unexpectedly, unexpectedly classical love story afloat with every dizzy genre turn. Lit from within by a heart-clenching silent star turn from Sally Hawkins, lent dialogue by one of Alexander Duplatt's most abundantly swirling scores, this is uncontested incontestably Dotoro's most rewarding, richly realized film, or, or movie for that matter, since 2006's Pan's Labyrinth. So there are a lot of comparisons uh, between this movie and Pan's Labyrinth, and they have a lot of um, similarities. They're both dark fairy tales set to the backdrop of a period movie. Um, so I didn't explain Shape of the Water um, summary yet, so I will explain the synopsis for it. Uh, it is about a mute 
laboratory cleaning lady, played by Sally Hawkins, who discovers the um, existence of a gilled fish creature who's being kept imprisoned by a government laboratory who was experimenting on him. And they fall in love uh, after meeting and being able to communicate through pantomime and various sign language. Um, she is uh, there, but they're obstructed by the Michael by Michael Shannon's government worker. Uh, there isn't much more that we know about it, except that it's really lush and gorgeous. And apparently the um, kind of the epitome of del Toro's work, because a lot of the criticisms he's had over the years has been his fixation on genre and on visuals while uh, kind of throwing aside the importance of plot and narrative. But here it seems there's a really perfect marriage of both and that he has subdued some of his visuals and whatever visuals that he has um, really thrown his uh, his all into really are in service of the movie and of the narrative. So it's it's getting a lot of positive buzz and it's quite exciting. We'll see how if that positive those positive reviews keep going as the film starts to pick up in other film festivals and when it debuts uh, later in, I think, in December. Yeah, it should be noted when you go to these film festivals, they're usually in like these high altitude mountain regions where and then when you see something that is good your brain might be affected by the altitude quite a bit. So sometimes you see, uh, <laughs> sometimes you see uh, more glowing reviews than no- than normal. Not to say that that you know great films don't come from these festivals. I've certainly some some of my favorite films the last ten years have come from Sundance and TIFF and stuff like that. But yes, let's wait until it, uh, the wider reception for this. I'm certainly excited for this. I'm a huge Del Toro fan. I wasn't so excited to see Crimson Peak, but this one I am excited for. Um, moving on the news, today is Force Friday 2, and all the new Star Wars Last Jedi items are hitting the stores. Brad wrote up an extensive article on SlashFilm.com talking about everything that's coming out. You can see pictures of everything that's coming out, and he also talked about what we learned. So, Brad, what, what are the coolest things coming out today on Force Friday? There are so many cool things. I actually uh, hit up some stores last night at midnight to make sure I could get some stuff. Uh, And since I can't predict the future, I'm just going to assume that I got everything that I wanted to get when I went to those stores. (laughs) And I'm just looking at it all right now on my table. Uh, So one of my favorite things to see whenever Force Friday comes along is the new uh, lineup of Black Series 6-inch figures which are Hasbro's higher-end action figures that are much more detailed and articulated than the usual three and three-quarters-inch action figures that come out. And they have a whole new line for The Last Jedi that's coming out, including, uh, finally, we get the action figure of Luke Skywalker wearing his white and beige robes from the end of The Force Awakens. We get a new version of Rey wearing her, her new Jedi training gear, uh, the Praetorian Guard, which is the new version of the Imperial Royal Guard that protects Supreme Leader Snoke. Uh, the Stormtrooper Executioner, also known as the First Order Judicial. And then there's also going to be a six-inch Black Series version of Supreme Leader Snoke, who comes with his own throne. It seems like that one may not be coming out until the fall, but they announced it today, and it, it'll be a GameStop exclusive. Uh, so those are the figures that I'm most excited to get my hands on. But there's there's plenty of other good stuff, too. Disney has their own... Elite Series figures, 
Um, there were some interesting details to be noted, surprisingly, from the lineup of the new Funko Pop vinyls. Um, those are like which we expected. We expect will be decimated tonight on Force Friday. I'm sure they will, and uh, maybe we'll have Jermaine Lucier on as a special guest to be, you know, extremely mad about that. <laughs> yes. Okay, um, go on. But yeah, so they um, they released the full lineup of the Last Jedi Funko Pops, and what's interesting is um, two things: is first, there are two Praetorian guards that are Walgreens exclusives, and they actually look different from the ones that we saw released in a first look photo from Entertainment Weekly a while back. They have different helmets. And they also have different weapons. So it seems like there are several different kinds of Praetorian guards that are protecting Snoke, which is kind of cool. One of them has like uh, what looks like a whip. Another one has uh, two machetes. And then another one has a longer staff with a blade on the end of it. So I think those are going to be uh, quite deadly enemies for presumably Rey and Luke to deal with at some point. And then, surprisingly, I didn't really, uh, know that this figure was going to be coming out, but Benicio Del Toro's mysterious character, who we know only as DJ, is getting his own Funko Pop. And I noticed in the image... Well, well Brad, to be fair, everybody gets a Funko Pop. That's true. Everyone does get a Funko Pop. Even, even the Porgs have Funko Pops. <laughs> Actually, they have multiple Funko Pops. They do. They do. <laughs> um, so what's interesting about the DJ figure is that on his hat, he has like this little metal label. It looks like, and it says something on it in Orabesh. and Orabesh is that language that you see all over billboards and things like that in the various star Wars movies. It's a, a language that's kind of like a hieroglyphic language in a way, but not quite. Um, and star Wars fans, obviously it's the, it's, I have translated it so that they know what the signs say in the star Wars universe. And the, the bad thing about it is so far we only, at the time of this recording, we have one image of him and we can only see part of the label on his hat. But And it either says J-O-R-N as in Jorn or J-O-I-N as in join. Because the problem is, is that I and R in Orabesh look kind of similar and it's hard to tell whether a certain part of the letter is longer and indicating that it's a, one letter or the other. So either Jorn is this character's last name or just the second part of his name, or his hat says some something, join, but, which... But by the way, I know this is ridiculous that we go into this level of detail with Star Wars stuff, but <laughs> we're all Star Wars geeks, and I love that the site dives into this kind of level of de- geekiness. So if, 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 if you don't want to just watch Star Wars on a surface level and you want to, like, search out these clues, like, you know, we go through the trailers shot by shot, <laughs> um... That that's one of the things I love about this site. Uh, you can go to Brad's full article, the coolest Star Wars: The Last Jedi items you can buy on Force Friday Two, on Slash Film. But I just wanted to mention—you didn't mention the Millennium Falcon, did you? No, no, I was, how- I was, I was, I was going to get to that because the um, Lego had a huge announcement today. That's not technically a Force Friday thing because it's not available on shelves yet. But they announced a brand new Lego set, and it's something they've released before, but they've revamped it and updated it it's a ultimate collector series edition of the millennium falcon which the ultimate collector series edition are the bigger sets that are insanely more detailed and accurate to what they're trying to recreate they've uh released a tie fighter previously and they also released a snow speeder um and there was a millennium falcon that was released before but it was discontinued a while back and that's most likely because they knew they were coming out with this one and this is officially the largest and most expensive Lego set that they have ever produced. 
It has 7,541 pieces, and it will cost $800. Hmm. It's, it's, ama- it's amazingly detailed. I, I want this set so bad, I don't know if I'm prepared to spend that much money on it, but what's really cool about it is that, unlike the other Millennium Falcons, this has a detailed interior, which includes the, the Jarek Holochest table, uh, all all the different in- interior parts where you can f- actually fit the minifigures and have them sit as opposed to just a smaller, uh, more scaled-down version of the Millennium Falcon. And, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be tough for me not to buy this, but I just don't know if I can justify spending that much money on it. See, for me, it's not the the price tag that worries me. It's the space. Like, where do you put this thing once you build it? You have so much room, Peter. <laughs> You say that, but uh, a lot of it's already taken up, Brad. Um, okay, let's move on to the last bit of news because we're we're running late already. Uh, an all-female Lord of the Flies remake is in the works, written by two men. HT, of course, you wrote this article for Slashfilm dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about it. So Scott McGee and David Siegel have struck a deal with Warner Bros. Warner Brothers. <laughs> I keep saying that. Uh, I think it's funny when you use it in the context of the DC movies, but okay, go on. (laughs) (laughs) They've struck a deal with Warner Brothers to write and direct an all-female Lord of the Flies remake. Um, And it is intended to bring a timeless story that is relevant today into a new perspective. And that's kind of along the lines of what we heard for a lot of gender-swapped movies. They are a way of bringing a female perspective to classic films or beloved films and giving women meteor roles that they would not get um, in the industry regularly. So, So, so HT, this is a win, right? All female Lord of the Flies. But it's not particularly a win because (laughs) Lord of the Flies was written with the intention of of uh, taking apart the the consequences of systemic toxic masculinity. So William Golding's novel was written in the 1950s, and it was a sort of commentary on how uh, there's in- brutality and violence inherent in young boys and men uh, when they are divorced from civilization. And it it doesn't necessarily talk about it from a specific gender standpoint but it's kind of hard to separate it from that idea of toxic masculinity and of our ideas of masculinity in general so in the 1950s and even today there's this sort of uh conflict between um you know this rugged individual individualism of masculinity versus intellectualism and that's the main conflict that's that takes place in lord of the flies and it's not something that is very common, not as a very common conflict with women. If you were going to remake Lord of the Flies as, as an all-female um, adaptation. But, but, but it not that kind of um, an interesting way of reinventing it to see what would be different if it was an all-female crew on, on in that situation? So I was... I was um while well, I was writing this, I was contemplating whether it, there's a possibility of making an all-female remake of Lord of the Flies, and I think it actually is possible 
it would require a much more nuanced take, I think, than we have seen in movies or pop culture to date. And that is because I don't feel that men have a full understanding of the teen female psyche. I think that we, if men were to write this movie, I am not completely familiar with McGee's and Siegel's writing, uh, Siegel's work. Uh, although I know they've done some films uh, such as uh, What Maisie Knew and B Season that are female centric, but those were also written by female screenwriters. Um, so I think that male screenwriters have a tendency to revert to female stereotypes, um, the back bite, the backstabbing, the uh, cat fights of like the feminine stereotypes. And I think that you, in order to tackle a story such as Lord of the Flies, you need to have a more nuanced take than that. Cause I do think that you, ha- there is a, there's potential for writing a story about flawed, complex, cruel women or cruel girls and like the uh p- the capacity they have for cruelty but it wouldn't be in the same vein as Lord of the Flies it would be a different story to, oh for sure to be honest. uh when you wrote this and, when, um, you, when you wrote this article uh slash film reader Ryan M tweeted out at, at us quote it recently became not okay for writers to write characters that have different DNA than them mm-hmm. so I wanted to ask you is that a trend like or is he is this guy wrong like it seems like he's misguided in this uh this viewpoint so i think he's definitely speaking about the reaction that we've had to news such as the lord of the flies remake and the confederate um hbo series from david benioff and david weiss uh, well, those are not the names weiss and benioff um okay. and I think that, yes, there is a tendency to have a knee-jerk reaction to these kind of news and say, you know, stay in your lane. You don't, you want to have stories that are uh, authentic and come from a place of experience. And I do think that, you know, if we have more writers of color and more female writers or people behind the scenes, then we'll have a chance for more diversity in stories. But I do think coming from the opposite end of what he's saying that male writers and people, male writers and people who have a a place of privilege in Hollywood come from that place of privilege and they can't necessarily completely understand every single experience. I mean, I know as a writer, that is your job to um, try to imagine other experiences, but there's also room for talent for people who have had these experiences who can write it from a more realized place. So in terms of Lord of the Flies, um, I do think that it would be interesting if we were to put forward more stories about teen girls' experiences that aren't just rehashed adaptations of stories that seem extremely narrow towards Seemingly suit, extremely suited towards more of a male perspective for, for the fly sure. specifically. So that's my take. It's all kind of I'm I'm learning about this too, actually. As I as we talk about these kind of things and as we talk more about diversity in front of and, and behind the screen, I think there is room for discussion and discourse, and we shouldn't all just sit back or like 
have a knee-jerk yeah. reaction to just, you know, everyone stay in their lane. But it, I do think that it should be called out or commented on that they don't necessarily have the expertise to be writing from a teen girl's perspective. Yeah, it, it, it's just weird to me, like, you know, when stuff like this is discussed on our site and other sites, you know, all these people come out of the woodwork, uh, SJW, they say, and, you know, <laughs> whatever. And, like, they're just, like, dismissing your opinion because of, you know, I don't know, politics, whatnot. But I think, like, you know, Black Panther is coming out. And that's mm-hmm. a superhero movie with a predominantly black cast. And I think when everybody sees that movie, and I haven't seen the movie, but I think when everybody sees that movie, you're going to see why it was beneficial to have a black uh, director at the helm mm-hmm. of that of that story because the culture is going to sh- you know shine through. That's not to say that you can't have you know Ron and John direct uh, Moana, which is about a Polynesian. Uh, uh, Disney princess either mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah I, I think there's definitely a room for this discussion and I, I think we're running out of time here so let's just get to the mailbag alright today in the mailbag uh, Jacob C writes in he says I'm a huge fan of the podcast I love listening to you guys every day on the way to school I'm currently going to the University of Southern Mississippi with a study in mass communication and journalism. Right now, I am interested in inspiration to me in this area, an honest and profound way of showing good people digging deep to find the truth. My question to you guys is, what movies would you recommend that have to do with journalism that are presented in the kind of real and true way, documentary or feature film? Thank you guys so much for the podcast as well as I keep up the awesome work. Thank you, Jacob. Um, I will start this out. My picks are really not conventional uh, for the most part. I'll start this off with Almost Famous just because it's in my top five movies of all time. And it follows Cameron Crowe as a little kid basically writing for Rolling Stone and following a band uh, in the 70s. And um, I'm not sure that this has the hardcore... um, uh, deep digging to find the truth angle that you're looking for. But I think there's an important lesson to be had here. And that is, uh, you know, when you're in, when you're writing about stuff, uh, when you, when you're doing what we do for a living, you sometimes, you oftentimes get close to your heroes and you, you develop friendships and relationships with the, the filmmakers and writers and actors that you love, but you still have to, uh, you still have to put a wall between that sometimes. And you, you got to be honest and uh, unmerciful as uh, Philip Seymour Coffin's character says in, in the film. And I, I think uh, this film, you know, I found this film after I had kind of um, started writing for a living about something else, not movies. Uh, but um, it, it rings true to me, especially in, you know, when you're jumping into that kind of world, jumping into the world of, uh, uh, I guess, movie blogging is what, you know, the world I'm in. But uh, he's in music journalism. Uh, I don't know. I, I just love the film. Highly recommended. And there's so much advice from uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman char- character, uh, Lester Bangs, that I think uh, you can you can take into your uh, into your work. Uh HT, how about you? So I have to make the requisite choice and talk about all the president's men. So this is the fictional uh, movie, well, dramatized 
uh, version of the Watergate events. And it stars Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the two reporters from the Washington Post who unveil the corruption behind the Richard Nixon uh, White House and after the burglary of um, the Democratic headquarters at Watergate. So this is an iconic journalism movie for a reason. It's both a thriller as well as a an in-depth look into what investigative journalism really entails. When I was in college, I actually took an well, I went to grad school for investigative journalism, and this was definitely this movie definitely spoke really true to me because a lot of investigative journalism is just looking through lots of documents and spending all day looking at numbers and pages and pages of historical records. And it's not that fun, but it is really rewarding at the end and is about finding the truth and finding that accurate version of the truth rather than just finding some sort of uh, thrilling scandal at the end of the day because, you know, they were just local reporters who stumbled upon this court case and ended up unveiling the scandal of the century. So that one is definitely one for the history books, literally. Brad, how about your pick? Uh, so uh, my first pick that I went is uh, it's a pretty recent movie and it's really easy for anybody to watch because it's available on Netflix and that's a documentary that's called Nobody Speak. Um, you might have heard this documentary referred to as the one that's about Hulk Hogan versus Gawker. Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan versus Gawker. Um, and that sounds like it would be kind of a gossipy documentary, but what's interesting is what's actually at the core of this documentary are the problems that we're starting to run into when it comes to ethics and journalism and the corporations and owners who are behind media companies and how this comes to affect uh, free press and how news is written and how it's slanted because of the people who own these media companies and how some of these media companies are even targeted by people with big pockets who are trying to control the media so that it's they don't spin stories that aren't in their favor. Um, a big part of the documentary is about explaining the Hulk Hogan case and uh, versus Gawker after they released uh, a sex tape without his permission and why it's important. But then it dives into the story of some of these newspapers who have started to have been taken over by um, conglomerate like people who start to stop their reporters from running stories that ha uh, paint their companies or what they're doing in an unfavorable light. And you see some of these newspapers are basically just starting to shut down and fall apart because these journalists feel like they can't operate with integrity uh, and with a neutral eye when they have these people backing them. And so it's kind of terrifying in a way, especially during this time when the media is very much under fire from uh, that person in the White House. And it's just, it's it's very troubling, but it's also very eye-opening. It's something that uh, everybody should see, especially during these uh, difficult political times. Um, an another film that's on my list is a 2003 film called Shattered Glass, that uh, was directed by Billy Ray and stars Hayden Christensen. Stay with me, guys. Hayden Christensen, I know. <laughs> Stay with me. He plays a guy named Stephen Glass, and this is based on a true story. Uh, he is, was a young journalist who fell from grace when it was discovered that he fabricated over half of his articles 
for the publication, the New Republic magazine. Um, Hayden Christensen is great in this. Uh, I know that a lot of people like to hate on Hayden Christensen, including myself. Uh, but th- this film is fast a fascinating look at uh, you know fact checking. Uh, it actually. I think won um, a Golden Globe for best report, uh, best performance by an actor. So uh, that goes to show you something. Um, and uh, I love the way it's framed, which I'm not going to kind of uh, spoil for you, but uh, the way it's framed is not exactly the way you would expect. Um, and I, I'm not sure if that's available to watch on streaming, but uh, I would go check out Shattered Glass. Um, so my second pick is... His Girl Friday, which is a screwball comedy from 1940, starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, uh, directed by Howard Hawks, the king of screwball comedies. Uh, It's less about journalism as it is about the electric chemistry between Cary Grant's character and Rosalind Russell, um, Walter and Hildy, who are ex-divorced, who are divorced um, reporters who end up working on a story together and clashing and then coming together and re reconciling over their differences. And it's, it's just a great funny movie. I guess I would say it's not really inspirational in terms of how well the journalism is done because the journalism is kind of second fiddle to the story of Walter and Hildy, but it's a really great uh, reporting movie um, that has this, murder mystery at the end and well it's solving a murder case i think and um it's it's a lot of fun i i guess i wouldn't recommend it for being a film about inspiring you to be journal to be a journalist although i will say that rosalind russell's character hildy johnson is a really great inspirational character uh for any um aspiring female journalist because she's She's gutsy, she's ballsy, and she stands her own with the rest of the newsroom. And she actually was originally meant to be cast as a man, but um, I think it was either Cary Grant or Howard Hawks who who saw Russell and Russell and wanted to change the character for her. Brad, what's your last pick? My last pick is Good Night and Good Luck which is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's directed by George Clooney, who also wrote the script, came out in 2005. It's black and white, which might make you think that it's a little pretentious, but it's black and white because the news at the time was in black and white, and it really sets the stage for when the story takes place, and it adds a certain level of drama to it. It follows David Strathairn as Edward R. Murrow, who is a real-life CBS journalist who was on television during the height of the Red Scare um, when there was uh, the House of Un-American Activities Committee was on a witch hunt for communists in the United States, using the fear that people had of communism to invade people's privacy and violate their civil rights by accusing them of things that they weren't necessarily guilty of. And because of the fear that existed at the time, Senator Joseph McCarthy was running wild with accusations, and oftentimes the news would even be in his sights. And Edward R. Murrow actually uh, took the senator to task, oftentimes using his own words to fight against him. Uh, It all unfolded on TV. It was this incredible battle between a despicable political giant and this trusted 
newsman, and you get to see how hard these journalists work to make sure that they have all the facts right and the risks that they take by going head-to-head with somebody who has so much control and has the ability to strike fear in people's hearts by ruining their career and lives, by accusing them of something that will essentially blacklist them from being ever be able to get a decent job and any association with friends and family because of how big of a deal communism was. There are a lot of parallels between this and what happened in the years following 9-11, and there are certainly some parallels that you can see happening uh, today as well. It's, it's a very relevant and powerful and timely movie. I know we each only submitted two picks, but I wanted to mention one last thing because he did ask about documentaries. And if you haven't seen page one inside the New York Times, it's the 2011 documentary by Andrew Rossi. Uh, It gives an unprecedented, unprecedented look into the New York Times newsroom uh, and shows you the changing landscape, media landscape, um, both for good and bad. Uh, David Carr is like the star of this movie. And um, I don't think the future of journalism looks like this, sadly, but this film is a must watch for any journalism major for sure. And uh, that does it for the mailbag. Uh, if you want to submit a question to the mailbag, send them to peter at slashfilm.com. That's peter at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographical location in case we mention it on the air. Uh, guys, HT, where can we find more of your work online? You can find me at slashfilm.com. I'm on Twitter at htranbui, and I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast, on iTunes. And Brad, where can we find you? Slashfilm.com on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And I have a podcast, too, called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. And you can find me at SlashFilm and SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday in iTunes, Google Play, Overcast. Subscribe to it. You'll get the podcasts early before they're published. And uh, as I mentioned before, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you have any feedback for us, Peter at SlashFilm.com. We'll see you tomorrow.